Hello and welcome to another episode of No Such Thing as a Fish, a weekly podcast. This week, coming to you live from Bath. My name is Dan Schreiber. I am sitting here with Anna Tashinsky, Andrew Hunter-Murray, and James Harkin. And once again, we have gathered around the microphones with our four favorite facts from the last seven days. And in no particular order, here we go. Starting with fact number one, that is Anna. My fact this week is that the reason you can no longer bathe in the Roman baths at Bath is because they contain brain-eating amoeba. <laughs> wow. Uh, so that, like, I was, I don't know, doing like, a D-rate horror film or something. But um, yeah, it's true. There are amoeba in the bars that will eat your brain. I must say, Anna, since you told us this fact and we got to our travel lodge or Premier Inn or whatever it was today, I was thinking, can I drink the water in Bath? <laughs> I know. Oh, yeah. Anna, we I need to address a, it. I have a question about this, which is that yes. I have drunk the waters of Bath and I don't know exactly ah. which ones I drunk. I imagine that... Just some random bath water. <laughs> Actually, that's the problem with this fact. When you try and research it, if you Google bath water, yes. all you get is someone called Belle Delphine, <laughs> who is apparently an adult influencer who was selling her bath water for $30 a bottle. Oh, wow. Okay, well, you, yeah. you shouldn't be bathing in Bill Delphine's bath water <laughs> or bath, bath water. And it's not all the water in bath, it's just directly from the spring. So... This was, this was discovered in the 70s. I hadn't realised that until 1978. Um, you could bathe directly in the spring. You know, when you're in the bath, baths in the museum, uh, there's that bath. How many times can I say the word bath? <laughs> and um, I hadn't realised that people used to swim in it until 1978. And then they realised that coming direct from the spring was this amoeba called Nigleria fowleri, which is also known as the brain-eating amoeba. And you get it in warm, fresh water. It's very rare. And like I said, it's just this one spring. It's not in any of the rest of the water. Mm. And it, it burrows into your brain through your nose. So it goes up your nose and then burrows straight into your brain. And um, it's 100% fatal. So, sorry, but that's okay. The... That's, that means it's fine if you drink water. You're not going to get it. It doesn't... If you drank the water, if you jumped into... The, and don't do this, but if you did jump into the bath spas and you just took down a lot down your mouth but kept your nose out of the water, you'd be fine. But Wearing then if someone bucket. made you laugh halfway through and it accidentally went up into your nose... <laughs> oh, yes. It yeah. would murder you. It came out the other way. What yeah. a great murder what? mystery, though. Yeah. What did I pay 50p to drink in about 2006? That was just Evian. They siphoned it into a... No, it wasn't. No, it tasted no, horrible. Not... It tasted sulfurous, and it was strong stuff. So, sorry, what's so the they've... story, Andy? What's his story? You... I went to the bath pump rooms in 2006 and paid 50p to drink a glass yeah. of... Frank, I'm sorry, guys, horrible water. <laughs> Very clever, seeing it's magic. It was nasty. I uh, think this is the bit that doesn't have the amoeba in it. It's, <laughs> so, there, it's borehole now. So, basically, you still get the really curative, brilliant waters of bath uh, that feed the Roman baths and they feed okay. you guys have probably been to that hotel with the swimming pool on the top that's fed direct from the spring which is very lovely uh, and that's just all through boreholes so it's not coming straight from the spring um, so this amoeba is filtered out why yeah. did you drink it? why was the thing to do? was it? Yeah. it's advertised you go to the bath you know the, the beautiful beautiful tea room at the bath spa and you they, you, they say this is the, the water that people have been drinking for hundreds of years for its curative properties and that has, this is the water that hasn't cured anyone for the last 
2,500 years right. and let what? it not no, cure it did, you. It did. It cured a man called Bladud, who was the whole reason <laughs> for the bath being founded. And Bladud, he had, he had an infection, basically. He had a Bladud infection. And he was... He had leprosy. He had leprosy. Yeah, he had leprosy. He was exiled by his family. Um, he went to Athens, got leprosy, and then came back to England, was exiled by his family for having leprosy, and became a swineherd. But then his pigs uh, jumped into the waters of the bath, which were coming up through the, through the borehole. And the, he, they frolicked and they got better and their leprosy was cured. So he built the city of Bath. So that's, and that's what happened. And that okay. is a true he, story. Right. <laughs> he was, um, he's like a semi-mythical, probably actually mythical king, isn't he? But yeah. he was like the father of King Lear, uh, Bladud. Oh, uh, they first wrote about him, the first person to write about him was Geoffrey of Monmouth in the 12th century. Uh, and he wrote that Bladud died when he constructed some wings for himself and flew into a wall. <laughs> nice one, mate. That's so good. What a waste. Because it sounds like the wings worked, but he just yeah. it was a directional issue that <laughs> it was his sat now. Yeah. yeah. He was like he was a necromancer, supposedly, and so he kind of he got the you know the devil to make him wings and stuff like that. Wow. Right. Yeah, that's cool, eh? that was wow. really cool. So uh, just very quickly, because I think a lot of, you know, we're in Bath, and so everyone here knows what we're talking about, but we do have a lot of overseas listeners, and I know it is famous, but these, these were Roman baths. These were, these were built by the Romans, and they used to go in every single day. They used to swim. There was, and in this city as well, there's been festivals. It's a big deal that off the back of the 70s, no one can swim because of this amoeba, because that was, it, the city is literally named for it. It's called Bath for it. And apparently the reason that this amoeba came around is because there used to be a roof over it. And the roof is gone now. And so the sunlight has caused for this amoeba to oh. find itself. This is what I read on a tweet. Um, and <laughs> Wow. But who, it's from a tweet from it? someone who felt like they knew what they were talking about. <laughs> you know, there was a solid hashtag next to it. And okay. it wow. was a historian, but supposedly there was a big roof that was over it. And so what did the roof do? The roof... Stopped the sunlight, and the sunlight is what was attracting the amoeba. Wow, because they, well, they say that sunlight is the best disinfectant, don't they? But except in this case, when it causes a fatal brain-eating amoeba. It's <laughs> always the That's second the half. second half yeah, of yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. It's in um, the small print of sunlight. The, there was a guy who, in 1999, a naked man jumped into the baths in Bath, claiming he was claiming to be Julius Caesar. Um, <laughs> he jumped into the baths and he refused to get out. And there was a big standoff because... Well, he's the emperor. You can't just drag well, him out, can you? Exactly. <laughs> and they didn't want to go in, maybe because of the amoeba thing, but they had to unplug it and then wait for it. For th it takes three hours to drain. Really? Well, they drained the they whole drained thing. They drained the whole thing and then... Mate, just drag well, him out onto the steps and murder him. <laughs> Et Do it the Roman way. <laughs> um, it sounds so fun. I don't know if there's anyone listening. Maybe there is who remembers this, but they used to hold things called the Roman Rendezvous, and they were held for four nights during the Bath Festival, and this was in the 60s. You'd pay five shillings, and you'd all, it was a huge party, and you'd all just jump around and swim in the baths, and then you'd go and dance the night away in the pump room. It sounds so fun. Like 1,400 people would go to this big that old bath amazing. party. Yeah. Someone remembers it? That, that's a scream that's 40 years too young to remember that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the baths are so rejuvenating. Um. <laughs> well, that's the thing, Anna. You said that no one was cured from it, but I've checked some um, local newspaper archives, and apparently there was a guy called William Toop of Froome uh, who suffered from paralysis after getting into cold water to gather watercress, and he was cured. 
Um, there was someone else who was bottling wine in a cold, damp cellar for several hours, and they were cured of their palsy. And there was someone who got colic after drinking stale beer in hot weather, and he got cured as well. So, you know, that's evidence for you. Yeah. So I'm, I'm not even sure you can get ill from bottling wine in a cellar for seven hours. Let alone then get cured by a bath. But maybe. It definitely does actually have some curative properties, yeah. like things like arthritis. Sorry, I, I, is, is that how you get watercress? You have to go into some water to get it. That's the name. Ah. Huh. <laughs> I'm very interested in that. I'm sorry, Did you I think it just grew naturally on the painted clay heads of those little... Yeah, things you make in year like seven. A, it's like cress. It's just cress. Cress doesn't grow in water, does it? I well, don't know. why do you think they called it all those years ago? Why do you think they called it watercress? I've never right. given it even a second's thought in my <laughs> life why it's called watercress. Well, I'm a busy guy. Where do you think seaweed's from? But just out of curiosity. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, okay. The bars used to be prescribed on the NHS until pretty recently. Really? No. Yeah, yeah. They actually had a deal. Bath did this bath. Buxton, which for overseas listeners is another big spa town in the UK, had deals with the NHS contracts where people would get prescribed water treatments and you'd go in and be sent there for back and joint pain and stuff like that. And actually in World War II, there are really cool pictures if you look it up. Or, no, I'm sorry, I think it's after World War I they decided that sitting soldiers, wounded soldiers in bars for long periods of time would help them recover more quickly. And you can see hospital rooms where instead of lying in beds, there are just lines of men who were submerged in bars, which they had to stay in for up to 42 hours. Whoa, wow. wow. Imagine how wrinkly you go. Serious prunes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so the... Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, bars to mention a rival spa town, but Harrogate has a spa as well. And it's, I don't know, guys. It sounds pretty good. So some of the treatments that you'd have, uh, these are from the 20s in Harrogate Spa. Uh, the sulfur electric bath sounds pretty good. Um, mm. not, um, <laughs> there, was, there was the... The, pe- old, the old combining electricity with a bath. <laughs> it's right oh, I don't feel quite right. Chuck another toaster in, will you? <laughs> um, there was the peat bath, which used fresh peat from the Yorkshire Moors, in P-E-A-T. You know, mm. Pete that you put on the garden. Um, yeah. There was also... <laughs> I didn't think you meant Pete yeah. <laughs> yeah. Someone called Peter gets thrown in. Hey, guys, I'm in here. <laughs> Fresh Pete. Room for another? What about a bit of... Fresh... <laughs> but there was also electric Pete, where they put you in a bath full of peat <laughs> and oh, just wow. ran a current through the peat. Every patient got a fresh peat, okay? Because you don't want to have someone else's peat. That would be disgusting. Imagine some peat that someone else has been in. Ugh. So they use 25 tonnes of peat a week. 25 tonnes! That's a lot of peat. That's so much. Wow. Yeah. Do you think all the people who are called peat together weigh more than the amount they used in a week? If, if it's 20 tonnes, yeah. Yeah. By quite a considerable amount. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, probably, yeah. Probably the math doesn't stack I've up. I've been to a rival um, spa as well. Uh, I've been to one in Budapest. Um, Budapest has the most thermal spas in the whole of mainland Europe. Some more in Reykjavik, um, but in mainland Europe they have it. Unfortunately, when I went there, I'd left my swimming costume in the hotel. And so I thought, well, I'll just buy one when I get there. But they only rent them. <laughs> oh. oh. So I had to rent a swimming costume in Budapest. Wow. But the good news is that the baths are very good for skin diseases. <laughs> right. <laughs> so it just balances out, yeah. doesn't yeah, it, yeah. at the end? But can you request size, or is it like a school's lost property box when you forget your swimmers? I think they just looked at me and went, 
Pete. Got <laughs> <laughs> the extra large. <laughs> um, have you guys heard of the Bath Curse Tablets? Oh, no. no. Oh, this is very cool. This is um, a collection of 130 Roman-era curse tablets, and they were discovered in 1979, 1980. And the idea was if someone stole something from you in, in Bath, you could go to these tablets, which were connected to a goddess, and you could say, I want you to take over the investigation, goddess, and you can smite the person. And you, so the idea was if they went to that, the person who stole the thing might return it because they were freaked out that, you know, suddenly a goddess was on the case. It was um, a very low crime-solving rate back then, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> that was their method. But it's, it's so amazing because cool. there's one thing, and they're not too sure yet, but um, there's, it's written in sort of, um, you know, Latin is how, how they wrote on these tablets, but they're also written supposedly in British Celtic, and if it's the case that it is, and they still don't know, if it is the case that it is, it's the only example of British Celtic that we have that has survived on really? tablet form. Yeah, so, so historians are trying to work out whether or not that is the case. Because I know some of them are, and this is a really amazing discovery, which goes to show that Bath is the bitchiest place known to man. <laughs> because the only things that were found here when everyone excavated the Roman bars was all these tablets saying, I don't like so-and-so, they stole my hair clip. I want you to kill them. Um, <laughs> it was all such disproportionate stuff, like um, Dosimedes has lost two gloves. So this is Dosimedes referring to himself in the third person, so already a bit of a dick. Um, <laughs> Dosimedes has lost two gloves and asks that the thief responsible should lose their mind and eyes in the goddess's temple. <laughs> Come on. That's disproportionate. It is. <laughs> Dosimedes. He's <laughs> probably thought, no, after he died, everyone's going, no one will ever mention that guy again. Poor <laughs> <laughs> well, thing. We've got to move on, guys, to our next fact. Oh, I've got oh. one little adventure that someone had in a bath recently. Great. Okay. Yeah. Save your personal stories, Andy. This, is, this, is, uh, this happened in 2017 in Texas. This is amazing. This is, happened to a woman called Chalzetta Williams. She was in the bath. She's 75 years old, and a tornado hit her house, and it ripped the roof off the house, and then it ripped the bath out of its moorings. And, and she, she was in there. She was in there. Wow. She was actually she was in the bath with her 40-year-old son at the time. And it was, <laughs> Sorry, how old? How old? 40. 40. 40. Have well, they were, they were sheltering from the tornado. They weren't. It wasn't. I presume. <laughs> Unless her son was called Pete, in which case, completely normal. <laughs> They land. The tornado ripped our clothes off. It must have. <laughs> How did that happen? Come on. <laughs> this is very upsetting. <laughs> he got, they were they were fine. He was he was he was tossed out of the bath. Oh, by wow. the, okay, come on, come on, come on. <laughs> they, <laughs> The wind, the wind speed was about 130 miles an hour of the tornado. They didn't end up that far away from the house. It wasn't like they ended up miles away. They were, they were in the garden at the end of it. And were they... But... Okay, did, I mean, does it have a happy ending? <laughs> it is time for fact number two, and that is Andy. My fact is that there is a Spanish firm which has six official ham sniffers. 
Their job is to poke pork loins, sniff them, and make sure they're good, and at most, they smell 800 hams a day. <laughs> well, yeah. I have a question. Yeah. Don't they all just smell of hub? Well, <laughs> that's to you and me. They absolutely would. But to these amazing experts... So, this, you may have seen this. It, it, you know, did the rounds a bit online before Christmas, but it's such an incredible fact. Is this Spanish firm called uh, Cinto Jotas, and it's... Uh, it's a company that they sell hams, uh, and they're 150 years old. They're a very ancient lineage firm. They produce very traditional Iberian ham from, you know, pigs which have been fed on special acorns, this kind of thing. And they have trained workers whose specific job exclusively... It's not like they do this for a couple of hours a day. Their job is to smell the hams to make sure they're good before they go on sale. Mm. Um, and they have, they have little kind of pipettes or, or little kind of jabbers to jab the ham in four specific places... Um, and, then, and then they have to smudge it over, right? It is the most amazing yeah. jobs. And some people will be qualified to sniff some types of ham, but not other types of ham. Yes! Um, what? There is a, more than one type of ham? There, there is a guy who is really good, but he is not qualified to sniff a particular bit of ham. Wow. His father is. <laughs> like, the, he hasn't yet qualified to sniffing that particular bit of the ham. They, so they have five seasonal workers at Christmas time, uh, but there is one guy who sniffs year in, year out. <laughs> And, and you have to do each ham in four places. So he sniffs 3,200 times a day. Yeah, but that's, that's in the high season. Like, on a usual yeah. day, he'll do 200. And going to 800, so th 800 loins a day, he'll do 3,200 sniffs. Yeah. And he says even that is pushing him to the edge, to the limit. That's, um, a that's one sniff every nine seconds. Yeah. It's oh. insane. But Assuming a standard eight-hour working day. Yeah, but day. if yeah. he's only doing nine seconds per sniff, that says to me he's not really doing a very thorough job. Well, well, he, accusation leveled. Yeah, he's very proud. He's called Mr. Vega, and he says the job that he is doing pushes him at the limit of human possibility. It's just, it's an amazing, it was in the Wall Street Journal, it's just such a good piece, it's so interesting. And they do say that if you can't tell straight away, then you're not doing it right. So they say it's really got to be an immediate instinctive thing. Oh, okay. So, you yeah, know, really you should be doing more. Yeah, they do tests where they, they take um, a smell and they put it into... So let's say they'll take five milliliters per liter of a smell and pop it into some water and then they'll put it into plastic cups. Oh, yeah. And you'll have to then sniff the cup. And because a plastic cup, the odor of the cup itself will take over, there's a sort of time limit of about an hour or so where that starts taking over. So the I, younger... think I thought it was a couple of minutes, uh, the, the smell of plastic. Oh, wow, surely, really? Okay. Surely it doesn't take us an hour well, to so, smell no, plastic. because some of the smellers, according to the Wall Street Journal article, they take ages sniffing it, but Mr. Vega, this guy who, who pushes himself to the limit of human possibility, <laughs> um, he says, if you doubt yourself, you cannot do the work. And then, according to the article, taps himself on the chest, and he says, if you doubt one, you have to doubt all of them. So he's like, you've got to make your decision now. He's, he's an amazing okay. guy. Yeah. Yeah. So is this, was this also in the article about Cristina Sanchez Blanco, who's the first woman to be head ham sniffer at Cinco Yotas? Mm -hmm. Oh. Um, because I read that she has such a good sense of smell that whenever her husband buys her a gift, she knows what it is before she unwraps it. <laughs> wow. He keeps and, buying her cow pats, though, doesn't he? <laughs> Apparently, if he buys her um, a perfume, he has to quadruple wrap it so that she won't be able to smell That's it. That's so funny. So good. I thought, I, yeah, I, I, wasn't, I didn't realise at first that you were talking about things like perfume, as in I thought she'd be able to say... This is an Xbox. It's a, <laughs> it's a book by George Eliot, I think. Hang on. It's one of the earlier ones. <laughs> But this, like, the, the accuracy of the nose depends on their exterior life as well. So Mr. Vega, talking of perfume, 
Um, he says he wishes and hopes that his wife never changes perfume because if she does, that alters his no-sense. Like, he went through a bit of a chaotic time when he oh, swapped really? to a new anti-balding shampoo and that absolutely messed with his nostrils because he was like, it was so potent, it threw him off and he couldn't do his job well. Quite difficult people to be married to, really. Uh, so this poor woman either, you know, A, can't change her perfume and B, her husband's now bald. Um, and... <laughs> Then Sanchez Blanco, Miss Sanchez Blanco, uh, who you mentioned, James, she said that her husband's a policeman, and then at the moment he comes home, she tells him every day about the day he's had before he can say a word. Oh my God. Because she can smell it on him. What? You know, wow. uh, whether it's like gasoline from a car crash, she says, soot from a fire, dander from a rescued pet. God, you wouldn't wow. risk having an affair, would you? <laughs> no. You just... Well, you might if you had an affair with, like, a butcher or something. <laughs> then that would be okay, wouldn't it? Because they'd, all they'd get is the smell of the meat and just assume it was yeah. off their own clothes and stuff. Also, his, in this quite small town, it sounds like he's having a much more action-packed police life than you should. Are we sure he's not just dousing himself to cover his affair with soot <laughs> just before he gets home or smothering himself in sausages to catch the sausage bandit? Know. Do you know that um, wafer-thin ham has up to 25% water? They've recently done a study of this, and they found that, like, when they get this wafer-thin stuff, most of it is actually water. Well, not most of it, but, like, a quarter of it could be actually water. And so that means that if you have a 100-gram pack of wafer-thin ham, which costs about 90p, yeah. that means, and it's 28% water, say, that means you're paying 25p for just for the water, which means you're paying the equivalent of, like, a five pounds for a very small bottle of water. That's the equivalent. Oh. It's only eight times wow. less expensive than Belle Delphine's bathwater. <laughs> <laughs> um, gosh. You know Linda McCartney, who makes um, yeah. vegetarian... Yeah, yes. Which she doesn't anymore. Veggie um, stuff, ve but veggie... Oh, veggie, yeah. yeah. Veggie stuff. This is, someone sent us this ages ago, and I just remembered it. Uh, she, the factory that makes her vegetarian fake meat is in Fakenham. <laughs> what? No. Fakenham. No. Yeah. So, I don't know. Did she choose it specifically? Did she? That's amazing. That's Where amazing is it? Fact. Where's Fakenham? Do you know? I actually, does anyone know uh, where Fakenham is? Oh, Fakenham. Norfolk. Yeah. Norfolk. Norfolk? Yeah. Great. Right. Yeah. Wow. That's why we've never heard of it. That's really good. And how many... <laughs> Um, pro pro uh, sniffing things. Oh yeah, oh, yeah. professional sniffers. Um, this is a thing, and there are lots of lots of different kinds of professional sniffer all the way across the world. So um, there are people who sniff armpits for a living. There's a man called Barry Druitt who genuinely works for a firm called Princeton Consumer Research, and he's spent 20 years smelling armpits. You haven't explained why. Great point. Uh, cosmetics companies send this firm, Princeton Consumer Research all their products, which have different active ingredients. So he smells armpits of volunteers, rates how smelly they are, and then they use the deodorant or whatever it is, and he will rate how well it manages to oh, mask really? So a firm might have six different kinds of potential new deodorant, and he will, you know, assess which one is best. But he doesn't like smelling armpits, he said. He says he thinks they're disgusting. Well, you know, a job's, <laughs> job's yeah, a job, isn't exactly. it? Exactly. <laughs> job's a job. He should have said it in the interview, should he? <laughs> <laughs> when they said in the interview, do you like smelling armpits? He should have gone, no, I don't, actually. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you, well, you if, don't... He, if you liked it, that would actually be bad because you wouldn't want a deodorant to mask the smell of an armpit. That's a good point. So... It needs mm. someone who hates the work. Yeah. 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 But he doesn't do it, uh, he doesn't have to do it uh, nose, nose to pit, as it were. He has these smell cones that he sniffs through 
You get specific smell cones, which are for sampling smells. And you put the pad under your armpit, don't you? I think. No, no, no. He goes, he goes into the pit. He goes into the pit. But oh. he has got a cone, oh. kind of cordon sanitaire of little paper cones. Right. I see. Because sometimes they do it with an armpit pad. I think oh. maybe if they've got a bit of extra budget. <laughs> and uh, there's a company called uh, Cavin Care, which is an Indian uh, cosmetics company. And they say they have a real problem with women's deodorant, uh, as in they have a shortage of volunteers to donate sweat because women, and particularly in India, women is a bit taboo to donate your sweat to be smelled. I actually thought that was sort of taboo worldwide, but apparently particularly <laughs> in India. Um, in lighter news, um, there was a great story today, which Andy showed me, which um, a dog that was lost in the forest uh, was taken out of the forest, rescued because a drone held off a string a sausage for it to... <laughs> to sniff and chase, and I think it must have been its sense of smell that was helping guide it, not Obviously just the visual. Obviously it was its sense of smell. Well, you can see your sausage. You can see your sausage no, in the they, air. they held the barbecue on the beach to lure the dog towards a particular bit of the marshland to keep it safe. So it was definitely a sense of smell thing. Hang so on, good. I thought you said they were hanging a sausage from a drone. They did a lot of things to find this dog. Yeah. <laughs> How special a dog was this? It's a very loved dog. Queen's dog? It wasn't the Queen's dog. <laughs> it, was, it was... Yeah, but it was... Speaking a, of dogs, actually, yeah. they have... Obviously, you have sniffer dogs in mm. airports quite often. And there was a report in 2015 um, of the sniffer dogs at Manchester Airport... And apparently, in the previous 12 months, they had failed to spot a single person carrying heroin or cocaine over the border. Uh, but they had found 181 kilograms of illegal meat. Wow. <laughs> Small amounts of cheese. <laughs> but no drugs. That's so good. There's a, there's a Dustin Hoffman quote that I always think about, which is to do with dogs as well. And it's, you know, it's attributed to him, and I really hope he said it. But the line goes... If a lot of dogs are on the beach, the first thing they do is smell each other's ass. The information that's gotten somehow makes pacifists out of them all. I've thought, if only we smelt each other's asses, there wouldn't be any war. <laughs> and I don't know why, but I think about that all the time. <laughs> I actually think that is not one of Dustin's best. <laughs> no? It's not up there with the you trying to seduce me, Mrs. Robinson. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you are. <laughs> That's a cut scene from the movie. <laughs> Dustin, stop sniffing her, please. Okay, it is time for fact number three, and that is James. Okay, my fact this week is that until it was identified by an art dealer in 1975, Donatello's bronze, the Madonna and Child, was being used as an ashtray and a tiddlywink bowl. <laughs> So, yeah, this was Donatello, um, one of the, maybe the greatest sculpture of the early Renaissance, uh, and he made this kind of bronze roundel, uh, and these days it's like one of the best things you can see in the V&A, one of the most expensive things. Um, but we think, basically, it was given to this family, and then it was taken by a guy called Lord Moulton when he was on the Grand Tour. He bought it, he brought it back, and then generations and generations and generations of people in his family just kind of saw it as a little bowl. It's kind of, it's like, um, like a candy bowl. It's quite small. You might not know it was from Donatello if you didn't know. But then one day they brought it to the V&A on like what they call an options day. It's a bit like uh, Antiques Roadshow where you say, how much is this worth? And they went, oh yeah, it looks like a Tiddlywinks bowl. And then a few weeks, a few years later, sorry, the head of the V&A was seeing this person and said, you know what, that's a Donatello. And they brought it back and it's completely priceless. But they were just using it to play Tiddlywinks. So, so funny. That's, yeah. It's so weird that you say it was, looked like a sweet bowl. Yeah. Because it, 
it sort of was. It was a thing called a uh, Desco da Pato when Donatello made it, which is called a birth tray. And it's a tray that you fill up with sweets and you bring to a mother when she's just given birth. Because oh. <laughs> a birth tray sounds like a tray you would give birth on. And if someone showed you that tiny little thing, <laughs> you'd think... No, well, actually, yeah. I just thought we could talk about tiddlywinks. What do yeah. you think? Yeah. In all the different countries, got lots of different names. In France, it's called the Game of the Flea. In Croatian, it's called Jumping Flea. In Danish, it's called the flea game. In Dutch, it's called the flea game. Uh, in Russia, it's called the game of fleas. In Spanish, it's called the game of the flea. In Ukraine, it's called game of fleas. And we call it tiddlywinks. <laughs> and it appears that we got the word tiddlywinks from an unlicensed alcohol shop. Really? Yeah. What, what do you mean? As in the word tiddlywink used to mean a place where you could get beer, but it wasn't licensed. Uh, and yeah. then we kind of stole that name and used it as a game instead. Should we say what tiddlywinks is? Sorry, for the benefit of any listeners who are not familiar with tiddlywinks. Okay. Yeah, it's a, yeah, yeah, it's a little game where you have plastic counters and you have to f sort of flip the plastic counters using other plastic counters into a bowl. And you can you shoot a wink and the, the, that's a, you have a special... The plastic which you shoot with, which is called a shooter, but it's also known as a squidger. You shoot your wink, and if you get it in the target, great, but you might fail to do that, but cover an opponent's wink, which is good, and if you've done that, you've squapped their wink, and they then <laughs> can't wink anymore with that Well, wink. this all sounds very clear. Yeah, I'm glad you cleared <laughs> this up, Andy. It's full of a lot of really silly... But actually, that thing where if you, if you tiddle your wink onto someone else's wink, yeah. and they're not allowed to tiddle that wink... That used to be really, really looked down upon, and you like that was really bad form if you did that. Now oh. it's part of the game, but it used to be, you know, you'll if you did that in the Wild West, you'd get shot. Yeah. <laughs> I imagine, I'd love to walk into the saloon bar where there's a poker game at one table, <laughs> blackjack at another one, and then the tiddlywink corner, <laughs> and everyone's dead. <laughs> you know, you can also uh, perform a boondock, and a boondock is when you free a squapped wink by sending it all the way away. So that's a boondock. And but how do you send it? So that's... A squapped wink is a wink that's covered by another wink. Yeah, so you... Yeah, so you... you how do you, you free it? You free yeah, it by, free it? Yeah. by using your wink to fire at your squapped wink and you knock the squap away. Oh. So you free your wink. However, you, there's yeah. another move then, which is a simultaneous boondock and squap, whereby... You boondock someone, so your wink has been squapped, but you... But you boondock it free. You boondock it free, <laughs> but then your wink lands um, on top... You squap someone else you in the middle of boondocking yes. your wink. Yes. <laughs> Fuck. And that, for some inexplicable reason, is called the John Lennon memorial shot. <laughs> There are so many versions of it. That's what I love. There was, so it was a big craze <laughs> in the 1890s, and then it fell out of fashion. But there were all these sort of late Victorian Edwardian versions of it. So there's tiddlywink tennis, tiddlywinks golf, winko baseball, battle winks, which is battleships with tiddlywinks. Um, there's Pedro, where you have to get in... There's a clown's mouth that you're trying to wink your winks into. Um, in 1992, there was Widdly Tinks, where you have to... There's a toilet, and that's the target. Ah. Which is clever. Yeah. yeah. Well, it started as Tiddledy Winks, of course, and then no one of knows why the D <laughs> fell, fell out. But yeah. as I'm sure you all know here, it was christened Tiddledy Winks by Joseph Asherton Fincher, or Ass Heaton Fincher. Um, double A-double-S-H. A I don't know. Um, and he invented it in 1889 and got the patent for Tiddledy Winks. And I was trying, going through the British newspaper archive trying to pinpoint the moment that we definitively lost the D. And I think it's roughly 1920. 
case you're interested. Oh, right. But it really took off again with Oxford and Cambridge competing against each other in the 60s, didn't it? And yeah. it became a real source of pride for Cambridge. And they had this notorious match. And it was in 19... <laughs> it was in 1958. And it was a guy called Peter Downs, who was head of the Tiddlerwing Society at Cambridge. And he wrote to Prince Philip saying, Prince Philip, have you noticed there's been an article written in The Spectator claiming you cheat at Tiddlywinks? It was a satirical article that had been written. And he said, would you care to defend your honour by playing us, Cambridge University at Tiddlywinks? And Prince Philip wrote back, saying very politely, I'd absolutely love to, a bit busy, um, but perhaps I could nominate someone in my place. And he nominated the goons. So there was this bizarre... Match. The, the, goon, the Goon Show, um, which was Peter Sellers, Spike Milligan, and Harry Seacombe. It was the biggest thing on radio at the time for a comedy show. Um, and the royal family were big fans. So, yeah, he sent, he sent them along to do it. Yeah, which apparently they tried to get the Goons to play them at Tiddlywinks, Cambridge had before. And so it's, it was so great they managed to get to the royal family and they had a royal instruction to go. So they had to, and they played Cambridge University and I was watching the video of um, the, when the umpire kind of launched the big match and he read out a letter from Prince Philip, which I still don't know if Prince Philip wrote it himself or if it was a bit of satire from the umpire, but I hope he wrote it himself. And the letter said, give my best wishes to both teams, but try, if you can, to do it in such a way that you convey that I wish the Cambridge team to lose. <laughs> that I had hoped to join my champions, but unfortunately, while practicing secretly, I pulled an important muscle in the second or tiddly joint of my winking finger. <laughs> ah. And then in the end, unfortunately, Cambridge did win, didn't they? They did. They did. Oh. Yeah, 120.5 yeah. to 50.5. A uh, walkover. Yeah, it yeah. really was. The students yeah. were in full evening dress all the way through. Uh, the goons were wearing yellow nightshirts with a, tie, a royal tiddlywink tie on that. Oh. Uh, and the game finished with Harry Seacombe singing a special tiddlywinks anthem. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, it was a big deal. Like, this was the big moment for the tiddlywinks um, community in the UK. Not for the goons. They had bigger moments. No, but they, it was the big moment for the tiddlywinks. Philip, really. Or for the UK. No. <laughs> or for the University of Cambridge. Yeah. Yeah. It was... But Tiddlywinks got a big moment there. And interestingly, on the, so that was on the 1st of March, 1958. On the 10th of March, 1958, Spike Milligan in the time since the match and the next Goon Show being recorded and going out wrote an episode of The Goon Show called Tiddlywinks in which after the hands of the defeat at Cambridge, Neddy Seagoon, who Harry Seacon played, seeks his gameful revenge. And the whole episode... So again, broadcasting to millions and millions, Tiddlywinks became... This big thing. And there's a Facebook page, which is the, uh, the official Tiddlywinks organization in the UK. They have a Facebook page. There's only about 400 people who follow it. But really? Only? Mm, only 400? Yeah, but wow. they thought it would be in the low hundreds of thousands. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the content is, is slamming. And there's, there's a guy on there called David Lockwood. And he says, this is from his post, he says, Prince Philip did more to expand our noble game of Tiddlywinks than anyone else in the world. I tell people that his sponsorship of the Goons match of 1958 created extensive publicity. And by the early 1960s, there were more than 200 clubs in the British Isles. Prince Philip continued to support Tiddlywinks through the establishment. He made a silver wink trophy, and he backed the 50th anniversary in 2008. So he was, he was wow. big. It he is was it's one of those sports that I'm afraid uh, America has trounced Britain at consistently for a couple really? of decades now. Yeah, they're much better at Tiddlywinks than British people now, the <laughs> British players. I'm really sorry. There was an article in the LA Times in 2019 about 
the kind of Federer and uh, Nadal of tiddlywinks, um, who are called Larry Khan and... Um, oh, I think it's David Lockwood is the other one, yeah. Uh, yeah, Khan and Lockwood are the, are the two. Cool. Um, yeah. Anyway, 2019, they reported on this match that uh, Khan was playing in Cambridge. And th- I'm quoting directly here. He'd flown over from Washington, D.C. on economy. Nobody asked for an autograph or to pose for a selfie. Khan's privacy hasn't been invaded by being the most successful tiddlywinks player of all time. (laughs) The man who was officiating the match he played in Cambridge, quoting here, emailed the members of the English Tiddlywinks Association to encourage them to come and watch. In the following five hours of play, nobody did. (laughs) And that's him emailing the English Tiddlywinks Association. If they're not turning up... Wow. I know. That's sad. I think one of the reasons is because it used to be illegal to play tiddlywinks in the UK in a pub without a license. What? No. In yeah, the UK this... in a pub without a license. Wow. Yeah. So there was a, a tiddlywinks match. It was, in fact, it was a marathon. The tiddlywinks marathon <laughs> over 15 yards at the York Beer Festival on the 3rd of November 1970. Uh, and this was supposed to take place. This was an article in the Daily Mirror that I found. Uh, but it was called off because the police rang up and said, no, it's illegal to do that without a license. Was this a gambling thing or is it dangerous? It, it was Gets for in your money. Eye? It, was, it was for charity they were doing it. And they said, there's certain games that you're allowed to do in pubs if there's money involved. And Tiddlywinks wasn't on that list. And so they weren't allowed to do it. And so they replaced it with a marathon of blowing peas through a straw. Hang on, and that was on the list of things you were allowed to do with money. <laughs> that wasn't counted as a spot. I see. There is, actually, there is a genuine crisis in the world of tiddlywinks happening now, and it's that there is a massive wink shortage. And it's a problem because most of the winks that are being used these days were made a long time ago. There are not firms making tiddlywinks these days. Right. So even the Cambridge match I just mentioned from 2019, they'd be using 1980s winks. No. Yeah. Really? The, what and there are, the what supply... were we using with tiddlywinks? Aren't my winks went from the 1980s I when know, I was using them? The supplier has gone bust, so this is a problem. And there are hopes that 3D printing will save the day. Right. Fingers Which will be crossed. amazing, you know, yeah. Well, I, I don't know if it is as young and vibrant as one might want it to be, <laughs> because if you look at the list of Tillywinks champions, I think you mentioned Lockwood and Khan. Yep. Uh, the, I would say they are more the Djokovic-Nadal, and the Nadal-Federer are Khan and Patrick Barry, the so British... So who's the guy who doesn't like yeah. vaccines? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Look, they're all very well vaccinated and it's social distance matches and I have no idea. But basically, Patrick Barry is a British chemical engineering lecturer at Cambridge and he has been playing Larry Khan on and off since they first met in 1995. Right. So that's, that's a good 26 years. Um, even in 1995, Khan had been going for 15 years. So he's, he's basically been going for 40 years, this guy. They, they need fresh blood, I think, in the Tiddlywinks game. Yeah, maybe. Patrick Barry is sponsored by a type of whiskey, isn't he? Um, Yeah, basically the whiskey company have decided that they don't want to sponsor Cristiano Ronaldo or Federer or Nadal or anyone like that. They want a real person who is passionate about their sport. And so they found Patrick Barry, who is the world um, singles champion at Tiddlywinks. Um, Is it possible they looked at the cost (laughs) of getting... Federer to be sponsored to sponsor the whiskey. If you look at this 24-year-old whiskey from Cameron Bridge Grain Distillery, it has a picture of the Tiddlywinks champion on the label. Amazing. Awesome. Um, apparently it has waves of vanilla, peppery spiciness, and the taste of pencil shavings. Mm. 
I think it's really exciting that this exists, and I think there should be, uh, like, because when you read the Facebook page, and if you ever get a chance, I encourage everyone listening to go and check out Newswink, the newsletter by <laughs> the official Tiddlywinks. Have you, re- have you read it. Winking World? That's another one. No, I haven't even gone near Winking, Winking World. Winking World is another very good one. Right. They, they recently ran a 12-page biography of Alan Dean. <laughs> no. How right. did they confine Wait. that to 12 pages? I know. <laughs> <laughs> Winking World 101 said most of your comments on WW100 were broadly the same this is all very well but why isn't there a 12 page biography of Alan Dean <laughs> well dear reader I aim to please then there was a 12 page biography of uh, yeah. Alan Dean <laughs> it is time for our final fact of the show and that is my fact my fact this week is that there is such a thing as bendy rocks but this is, I mean, it sounds <laughs> bullshit, but it's true. There are genuine bendy rocks in the world. So there is a sandstone, it's called itacolomite, and it's not found in many places in the world. You get it in Brazil, you get it in North Carolina, you get it in Georgia, there's a, there's a town in India, you get it. There's, I'm sure it's other places, but they've only been found in, in sparse areas around the world. And this is a rock where basically, you should watch videos online, it wobbles when it's held on either side in a way that rocks don't. And it's because, <laughs> it's because in the inside of the rock, there's quartz and there's these interlinking bits, these interlocking sort of bendy bits inside that hold the quartz together. And there's voids in them, which means there's bits of space where they just find themselves having a bit of flexibility. But there's enough of them that the whole thing can bend. Well, so it's not like if you're walking along the mountain, you're like you're on jelly the whole time. Yeah, is yeah. It? It's not like that. You have to get quite a thin slab and then you can see it. Yeah, exactly. Bit. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's just, it's, you know, if, if there was one thing we were certain of in life is that rocks don't bend. Um, <laughs> so I was fascinated to learn that, that they actually do. And actually, interestingly, it turns out all rocks bend. Um, it, they just don't do it as quickly as old, as old Bendy mate over here. What they do is, <laughs> if you see, and you can see rocks all over through, through, like even on the side of cliffs where you notice that they have this kind of bend in them. Over, like, over many millions exactly, of years. Exactly, but over millions of years, a pressure, if there's a pressure on the side of a rock, it will slowly bend to the pressure. Yes, it takes thousands, if not millions of years, but if you've got the time, <laughs> you can bend any rock. Yeah. Is there a use for this bendy rock? I'm sorry to be all practical. Um, bouncy no. castles? Like actual castles? What, where you have the bouncy? <laughs> <laughs> <That's> awesome. That's... <laughs> I'm not sure we have enough of it or if it's been studied enough to, you, to know if it's useful for practical yeah. things like building or, or so on. So yeah. the, the example that I've got on the screen here for the audience tonight is from Leeds University. That's in their archives. So they obviously send it to universities around the world going, look, a fucking bendy rock. And... <laughs> So it's obviously a That's new... very cool. Yeah. Do, do you want to hear about another magic rock? Yes, please. Yeah. There are magic rocks around the world which are the opposite of seismometers, okay? So, so they tell you when there's not an earthquake. Bingo. Bingo. I have a feeling I can do that anyway. You probably could. You probably could. Is it when they're not moving? <laughs> that means there's no earthquake. Yes. Yes, but they're even more magical than that. Imagine, they're called PBRs. They're precariously balanced rocks. Oh, yeah. And what? Oh, they're rocks yeah. that look like they should fall over any minute now, but they're still standing. And if you, if you know, you know, how long they've been there, 
They're reverse seismometers. They tell you they haven't fallen over. There hasn't been an earthquake in that set period of time that they've been balanced. So yeah. this is really useful because if you want to build a nuclear plant, you want to build it somewhere where there hasn't been uh, an earthquake for a very, very long time mm. or a bridge or whatever. And so you so build it right underneath the precariously balanced rock. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> And so these are really useful. Yeah, that's they're, amazing. But are, that's there, so cool. are there that many of them? No, I there aren't that many. Very much. It's not that useful, actually. <laughs> no, I say it. <laughs> I can think of one. This isn't um, a rock so much as a virus, but there is a thing called a Medusa virus. And I think it might be useful in Bath because it can turn amoebas into rocks. Oh, really? Isn't that clever? Yeah. So when the virus goes into the amoeba, it kind of makes this kind of rocky shell over itself and turns itself into a rock. That's wow. incredible. Isn't that cool? But there's the amoeba still inside. The amoeba's still living Stuck. inside, yeah. Oh, yeah. What a horrible way to go. <laughs> yeah. Aww. That's great, though. So Barspa could become a rock pool, which would be awesome. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Is that a thing here? It's in Australia, yeah. Yeah, um, we, have, we, we have rock pools in this country, yeah. Yeah, but, Thanks. No, you know, but we've also got watercress. It doesn't mean we've all thought about these things. <laughs> Um, I've got a magic rock uh, to accompany yours. Um, you can get rock that is... So I think we actually mentioned this once on No Such Thing as the News, the, the long-lost TV show we once did. Um, but you can get rock that is as soft as butter, that you, can, you put your finger in it and it bends like clay. And this happens. Uh, it's quite rare, but it happens, for instance, cavers are told to look out for it. It happens when people are making big quarries, they come across it. And it essentially happens when rock's being dissolved. So limestone can be dissolved by um, very uh, salty waters around it or acidic waters around it. But sometimes a bit of rock will be dissolved, but then it will be surrounded by other rocks. So the rock doesn't dissolve and then flow away. It just gets trapped, this soft dissolved bit of rock inside another rock. And so apparently when you're caving sometimes or when you're quarrying, you'll tap through a bit of rock and then suddenly you'll think it's rock solid and you'll put your finger in, just penetrates all the way through like oh, magic. Wow. Why is that dangerous? Like, Sorry? It sounds dangerous. Why is it dangerous? Why is it? Yeah, yeah. It's not? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you said that people were told to look out for it and stuff. Oh, no, oh, yeah, it wasn't but like... look out for it. Like, you know, look out for that adorable squirrel, yeah. you know. Oh, right. It's not, look out. It's... Right, sorry. Look out. <laughs> look out. Wow. Um, do you want to hear some rock-related words and maybe guess yes. what they are? Ooh, yes. yes. So these are kind of mining-related, I would say. So um, can you guess what a bottom steward is? Bottom steward. Bottom steward. Uh, yeah. It's Dustin Hoffman played this role, actually. Uh, <laughs> someone who looks after the lifts in the mine. Pretty close. It's someone who looks after the people who work at the bottom of the pit. Oh, okay. Oh. Yep. Nice. Uh, back ripper. Back, back ripper. ripper. No, back it's ripper. Um, someone who removes the old support. So when you're going away from somewhere, you get all the supports from behind you, and then you put them in front of you. So you're ripping them away from the back. That's oh, okay. so clever. Uh, do you know what a glory hole is? Yes. <laughs> Well, I, I think I, I thought I did. Surprised <laughs> they've got time for that sort of business down the bottom of a mine, though. <laughs> Everyone's got to let off steam at the end of the day. Um, no, I've no idea. If um, you have that rock that you could just put your finger in, then maybe yeah. no. Is it uh, a way of seeing from different mining tunnels to each other? Like a, no, a it's just what miners call an extremely impressive excavation on the surface. They call that a glory hole. Ah, sure okay. it is. Uh, and Can I just quickly tell you something about a glory hole? Oh, yeah, go on. <laughs> 
Finally, we're on that subject, are we? I remember, so when COVID first kicked off, the EU had a bunch of recommendations for how to avoid getting it. And there was, and I was on the EU legal side of the website, a recommendation that you take advantage of glory holes to stop yourself from contracting the disease. Um, wait, that is a whole, is that, that's a whole you have sex through, right? Yes, 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 yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. 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 Yeah, and it's in the EU EU law. It so feels like there saw... might be other de- diseases that you're <laughs> yeah. leaving yourself open. So you just saw people walking around with a door, didn't you, with a hole in them? <laughs> <laughs> I know that the oldest glory that we're just on glory hole facts now, but the oldest know, glory hole in Australia is in a museum, I think, in Perth. And there was a big argument about whether this should be allowed to be in a museum because, you know, it's a glory hole. But they were saying, well, it's a really important part of the LGBTQ community in Perth and in Western Australia. How old, I mean, is, how old is it? Is it like cavemen? Or... <laughs> and is it an interactive exhibit? Or... <laughs> have you seen, Dan, have you seen those things at the seaside where you put your head through <laughs> and you get a photograph? It's like that. <laughs> I know it's my fault we're on this, but let's go back to your wrong vocabulary. (laughs) No, no, let's move on. I was going to say, oh, do you know that the word bougie uh, was a particular uh, fast-drying type of cement that you would pump into the bottom of a mine to give you a floor? Cool. That was known as bougie. Yeah, isn't that cool? Mining is so cool. some, Some mines are so deep that the lifts can't go all the way down because the lift cable is so heavy. Oh, wow. that you have to stop, because the lift would snap under the weight of the cable. Yeah. So you have to go down to a certain level, then get into a new lift and go all the way down to the bottom. Wow. Unbe- the technology that they have is just crazy. So I mean, that's, that's taller, like, it goes deeper than the Burj Al Khalif, for example. Well, no, I think Does they it? have no. to have more than one lift as well. Oh, yeah. there's more yeah, than yeah, one yeah, lift yeah. there, right. Yeah, okay. same, wow. same yeah. issue with skyscrapers. Oh, wow. Um, Tracy Emin, oh, yeah. the artist, uh, married a rock a few years ago. The rock, or... No, just, just a rock, sadly. Sadly for her. She found a rock in her garden, and she said, I'm marrying this rock. She was 52. She wore her father's funeral shroud for the marriage. And she said, it's not going anywhere. It will be there waiting for me. And she said, the stone I married is beautiful and dignified. It will never let me down. <laughs> they divorced two years later. <laughs> Do you know what's mad about that? Is that I'm pretty sure... I was reading an interview with Tracy Emin recently and her mum wanted to call her Pebble. I'm fairly certain that's right. Really? And her mum really wanted to call her Pebble and I think the doctors at the hospital said, we can't let you call your daughter Pebble. Because she'll be fucked up if you do. <laughs> <laughs> Why would they say that, the doctors? They said it's not a good name. Said it's not a proper name. Yeah. Well, tell that to Fred Flintstone. <laughs> Okay, that is it. That is all of our facts. Thank you so much for listening. If you would like to get in contact with any of us about the things that we've said over the course of this podcast, we can all be found on our Twitter accounts. I'm on at Schreiberland. Andy. At Andrew Hunter M. James. At James Harkin. And Anna. You can email podcast at qi.com. Yep, or you can go to our group account, which is at no such thing, or our website, no such thing as a fish.com. All of our previous episodes are up there. Do check them out. And I uh, just want to say, Bath, thank you so much. That was so much fun. We love being here every time. And we'll come back again. And everyone else who's at home listening right now, thank you for listening. We'll be back again next week with another episode. We'll see you all then. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> 